one of the most amazing things about the Christian message and the good news of Jesus is not just that we're forgiven, but that God invites us into his family. It's not just that he cancels the record of debt that stood against us, but he makes us children. I mean, God could have forgiven us and said, okay, I forgive you, and you get to come to heaven with me forever, but you're gonna be subjects and servants. And that's not what he did. He said, instead of being subjects and servants, your primary identity is going to be as sons and daughters. What an incredible story. Now guys, adoption's hard, right? I don't know if you've ever been in that process. Obviously some of you have, or you've known somebody. Let me give you two words. When you think of adoption or foster care, I'm gonna put those together. Let me give you two words. Here's the two words. Costly and complicated. Okay, I don't mean to be too negative because there's a lot of joy on the other end but it's very costly. Did you hear how emotionally costly it is? In fact, you have to tell people this. If it's the first time that they've ever gone through the adoption process, you have to say, hey, listen, this may not work out. And you may think you're getting a child and you may have bought the crib and you got the bunk beds and it's minutes and it's moments away and you get a phone call that he's not coming or she's not coming. It's emotionally costly. It's also financially costly. It costs tens of thousands of dollars to adopt. And so we said as a church, as a church leadership, we said, I think we can do something about this. And we want to help families. And we want to be like Jesus who said, let the little children come to us. And we want to be like James. And we want to care for widows and orphans. And, and so here's what we did. We said, let's take a hundred grand from our missions budget and let's set it aside for the sole purpose to help to fund and fuel families that want to do adoption and foster care. So if you're a member in our church and you want to adopt up to 25% uh, or $10,000, we will help you with 25% up to $10,000 to adopt. So unbelievably exciting. If you want to get into the foster care pipeline pathline, we're going to help reimburse your expenses up to $2,500. So I hope you just know that we're serious about this and Christians have always cared about adoption. Do you know why Americans, do you know, do you know when historically um, adoption became popular in America? When Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie did it, <laughs> okay? Oh look, there's beautiful rich celebrities who are adopting. Honey, maybe we should adopt that's what happened. But for Christians, it was cool long before Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie made it cool. In fact, it wasn't just cool, it was biblical. And uh, we, we adopt because God first adopted us. And the gospel's not just our message, it's also our motivation. And uh, <clears throat> let me just speak personally. I, I have not talked about this a lot because I don't want it to be tethered. I don't want this foster care adoption thing to be tethered to me or my family. But uh, we uh, have gone through the foster care process. We, we do respite care, which means that we're in the shallow end of the pool. Uh, but what we do is we help, uh, we will take uh, foster kids for the week or the weekend uh, to help foster families. That's how I got sick recently. <laughs> it's just what happens, right? As you invest, this is it's actually a picture of the gospel. It, sometimes it makes your life a little bit different, more difficult. But it has been a unbelievably huge blessing to me and my wife and to our kids. And so what I want to do is I'm just going to, I'm going to pray for us uh, about this, this whole ados, adoption and foster care initiative in our church. And then we are about to dive into the deepest text I've ever preached on in my entire life. Let's pray. Um, Lord, we just are here together as a church family. It's great uh, to laugh together. And um, the church is a family of families. God, you're our father. If we're in Christ, Jesus is our great older brother. 
And we're just brothers and sisters. And when we understand that, uh, that the church is a family, it just makes all of the one another commands in Scripture just make a lot of sense. Lord, and we, I pray for, I'm guessing, in, in a room like this, in a church like ours, there's maybe a dozen people right now in this room that have considered adoption or considered foster care. And uh, into the complexity and into the costliness, we want to simplify it and streamline it. And I pray that people would take their first step and their next step in regards to uh, what you might be calling them uh, to do in adoption. I pray for all of us, because every Christian isn't called to adopt, but every Christian has a heart for adoption because and, and understands the biblical basis of it. So would you help us as we dive into a deep text today? In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Have you ever wanted to know what somebody else was thinking, right? It's kind of frustrating sometimes when you're like, what are they thinking, right? A lot of times wives are like, what is my husband thinking? And let me tell you, ladies, not much, not much. We're not thinking about it. <laughs> You know, what club should I hit on number seven? That's what we're thinking about, okay? Uh, we're not thinking about, the guys are so frustrated. They're like, what is my wife thinking? And all the wives are like, well, you should know, okay? I told you. Well, we don't know, okay? We don't know unless you tell us. Well, if you'll type two or turn to Ephesians 1, <clears throat> we're gonna get to see how God thinks. Interesting. We wouldn't know how God thinks if God didn't tell us this is how I think. And you know this because <clears throat> anytime you're trying to get to know somebody, you're all, it's always more dependent on the person being known. They have to open up. They have to reveal themselves. And so what we have with the Bible is what we call revelation. And uh, that's, I'm not talking about the book of Revelation. I'm talking about Genesis 2 Revelation. That's God's revealing of himself, his forfeiting of his personal privacy. And if we don't have revelation, then all we have is speculation. Revelation is this is why God's done what he's done, he tells us. If we don't have that, then we have speculation. Well, this is what I think, and this is how I feel, and this is what I guess, okay? Well, not as helpful as revelation, but here's what happens in the Bible. In the Bible, God reveals himself in what is called progressive revelation. And it's not hard for you to understand. It basically means God tells us more across time and builds on what he already told us. This is what you do with kids. You're like, all right, well, you know, you got to learn your basic math. You got to learn your numbers. And then you got to learn arithmetic and subtraction. Then you got to learn multiplication and division. Then you can do algebra and then you can do calculus. Okay, duh. That's how it works. It's called progressive revelation. Well, if you'll look in verse nine, I'm not going to put it on the screen, but at verse nine, he says the mystery of God's will. Today, we're talking about the mystery of the counsel of God's will. It's like, wow, my head hurts. What is a mystery? Okay. In the Bible, a mystery is not something you cannot understand. It's not like, ooh, gotcha, mystery. In the Bible, a mystery is something we did not understand in the past, but God has now revealed to us, progressive revelation. So here's what we're gonna do today, okay? And, I, and there's a reason, by the way, I actually do think about these things. There's a reason why I waited seven years to preach through the book of Ephesians. I wasn't ready and we weren't ready to go through Ephesians until now. This is why I probably need at least another couple years before we're ready to go through Romans. Because it, we're, we're gonna deal today with the deepest things in the mind and heart of God. Now, <clears throat> here's what we're gonna deal with today. We're going to deal with why are you a Christian? And you're gonna have to ask yourself, do you want the five-year-old answer or the 15-year-old answer? Because most people, and it's okay, most people and most churches give you the five-year-old answer. Well, you know, you trusted Jesus and you prayed to accept him into your heart and you said the Lord's prayer and you believed in him and you repented of your sin. That's the five-year-old answer. Today, I'm about to give you the 15-year-old answer. Here's what it's like. It's like, um, you know, when like your kids are like five or six or maybe younger, they look to you and they say, 
mom, dad, where do babies come from? And you're like, yikes. And you give them, and it's not a lie, but you give them an age-appropriate answer. You say something like, well, you know, God put that baby in mommy's tummy. Or maybe you say something like, well, when a daddy loves a mom, you know, whatever. <laughs> You're not going to go into great detail, okay? Well, you might say a little bit something about marriage, and you might say about love, and you might say whatever, okay? But then, that's what happens when you're five or six. And then it's all different ages for us. But there's usually that moment growing up where you're 10 years old and you're in the back of the bus going to school. <laughs> and the fifth grader or the sixth grader says, let me tell you how babies really happen. <laughs> and you go, oh my goodness. And you're scared. <laughs> and you're shocked, and you're interested, and you're surprised, and you're overwhelmed. That's exactly what's gonna happen this morning. I'm going to tell you why you're really a Christian if you are a Christian. And it's gonna be the same as you felt when you first heard about how a baby is really created. So let's go to verse three, here we go. We'll start there. In verse three, here's what it says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So here's what we're going to do today. I'm going to give you the deepest doctrine in the Bible. <clears throat> Maybe the only places that there would be deeper doctrine than what I'm teaching today would be Romans 9 and 11. But this is the deepest doctrine in the Bible, but I am not giving you this doctrine so that you will only be deeply doctrinal people. Because if you've ever met deeply doctrinal people, they're strange, as a general rule. Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us um, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What is he saying? He's saying the purpose of doctrine is doxology. The purpose of understanding the word is worship. The purpose of going deeper is so I can reach higher to God. And so what I'm trying to do today is the goal is not to give you a bigger brain. The goal is hopefully to give you a bigger heart. So the first thing that Paul does is he praises God. He said, blessed. Do you see the word blesses in there three times? It's blessed and then two blessings. Now we have to understand the word bless. So, you know, today you'll see on social media, someone will say something got a new job, got a new home, got married, got into the school, hashtag blessed. Or if you really, you know, want to make a long hashtag, hashtag too blessed to be stressed. Okay, there you go. That's a real hashtag. Too blessed to be stressed. Here's what most people mean by blessed. They mean a kind of luck with a nod to God. A little bit. You're probably not going to have an atheist say blessed. But it's kind of a general, like there's luck, but like a nod to God, kind of has something to do with God. By the way, if you're new to the South and someone says, bless your heart, that's a different kind of blessing. <laughs> that's a you don't have a clue, you poor soul, okay? Um, <clears throat> what, we're, we're find, what we find, this is so simple, what we find out here is that every blessing is from God, and this is deep, every blessing is blood-bought. What do I mean by that? Every blessing, it says, is in Christ. 
Every good thing is not just a nod to God. It's this flows from the cross of Christ. Why is God able to be good to sinners like you and me? Why are we able to have food and drink and family and beauty and why are health and and all the spiritual blessing we're talking about? The answer is because of Christ dying on the cross for us. Now, the first thing he says is that we are to bless God. Do you see this? We bless God because God blessed us. By the way, as a principle, and by the way, when it says bless God, it just means celebrate, be thankful for, worship. But here's the truth. You will bless whoever or whatever you think blesses you. The problem in America is most of us think we bless us. So I thank me for all I've done for me. It's like at the end of the day, why do you think that you have money? Or that you've been able, is it your job? Is it your skill set? You will bless whatever you think blesses you. Why are some people obsessed with politics? Why do they celebrate and bless certain political candidates to an extreme? Because they think those candidates bless them. Notice in verse 3, he says there's heavenly blessings. Now, there's, let me talk for just a moment about earthly blessings. Earthly blessings are also blessings from God. Uh, or there's actually in the Old Testament more of an emphasis on earthly blessings and heavenly blessings, right? So Job is like super wealthy and he's got 10 kids and all these servants and all this cattle. And then Abraham says, God blesses Abraham. And guess what Abraham has? Lots of money and lots of stuff. And <clears throat> God blesses David and Solomon. And you get the idea. Um, but here's the problem with our earthly blessings often. And I don't know why this is. But we're not very thankful even for our earthly blessings. Here's why I think we're not thankful for our earthly blessings is because we're looking around and we're comparing our earthly blessings with everybody else's blessings. So we don't feel very blessed because we're comparing our unfiltered life with other people's filters lives. So I've got an average home, but the other day, my kids and I, we were, and my wife, we, we went over to uh, a friend's house and we go there, we're there for a couple hours. They've got a really nice, really big house. And we come home and we pull in the driveway. One of my kids says, dad, our house is small. And I was going to correct them, but I'm like, I know. <laughs> I wanted to, like, call one of my friends with a smaller house and be like, can we come over? <laughs> I need to spend time at your house, so I'm thankful for my house. Um, <clears throat> we are not thankful for our earthly blessings because we're comparing them with other people's. Uh, we're not thankful for our earthly blessings because we don't realize them until they're gone. It's like, man, youth is, a, youth is wasted on the young, they say, right? You turn 40, you turn 50, you have to get up and go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. <laughs> no. you're, you look at yourself and you're like, I had hair and, and nothing was gray and I had energy. And I didn't even realize it. You don't realize how good it is to be healthy until that's gone, right? I've had food poisoning once. You ever had that? You want to die. Like I never realized how good it is just to feel good. You don't realize how blessed, how blessed you are to be able to call mom or dad at any moment until, well, you can't call mom and dad anymore because they're not here. You don't know how blessed you are to have your kids in the home. I know it's crazy and you can't wait to be an empty nester, but then you get there and the home's a little quiet. You will spend 95% of uh, the time that you have with your kids you'll have in the first 10, 18 years of their life. 95% of the time with your kids will be in the first 18 years of their life. The next 5% of your time with your kids will be the rest of their life. 
we don't realize our blessings till we're gone. Partly we don't realize our blessings because we don't articulate them. We don't talk about them. We don't say what Paul said is what you often would say to people is, I thank God for you. But we're not here to talk about earthly blessings. We've got to talk about heavenly blessings or spiritual blessings. Look at verse 3. <clears throat> he says that God has blessed us. By the way, it's so sure it's talked about in the past tense. Uh, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. So here's what you need to know. Every Christian has different earthly blessings. It's not worth trying to compare. You have more money, but they have a better family. You know, I... You've got a better job, but they've got a better marriage. It's not worth comparing. Everybody has different earthly blessings, but here's the encouraging thing. Every Christian has the same spiritual blessings. Do you see that? You have every spiritual blessing. Paul's writing this so you would know how much money is in your spiritual bank account. Because you can't be thankful for a blessing you don't know you have. And you cannot embrace a blessing you don't know that's yours. And so here's where we're going to go with the rest of the time. And we're going to go really deep three different times here. We're going to look at our blessings in eternity, our blessings in history, and our blessings today. Our blessings in eternity are from God the Father. Our blessings in history are from God the Son. And our blessings today are from God the Holy Spirit. Isn't that beautiful? I'm going to take you right through the text, and you're going to see the unity of our triune God. So let's, let's not waste any more time. We've got to go into the depths here. Here we go, guys. We're going, to go into, um, we're going to go out into the deep waters together for a second, okay? And there's no lifeguard on duty, okay? So learn how to doggy paddle, okay? Let me take you here. <clears throat> Here's what it says. We're in verse 4. Even as he, and that's God the Father, chose us in him, chose us in Christ. Okay, before the foundation of the world, that's eternity past. It's hard for us to think about the time before there was time, but that's where he's taking us. That we should be holy and blameless before him. So you go, okay, th thank goodness that whole chosen stuff's over. Okay, and then he says this. In love he predestined us. Okay, look, and I don't want you to worry about that word because what it means is predestined. Okay, that's what it means. Predetermined, predecided, foreknew, foreordained. We'll get there, okay? Um, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according, look at this, this is so deep, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. So here we go. We're going to talk about the first blessing. This is what it calls, so it's not meant to be scary. It's not meant to be something Christians disagree and debate and divide over. It's our first blessing. The first blessing is the blessing of election or the blessing of predestination or the blessing of being chosen. And my thing is, I don't think most Christians have ever been told this. Now, if this was like a super small, like insignificant, like little theme in, my, in the Bible, I wouldn't talk about it. Or I'd talk about it really, like really quickly. I'd be like, ah, the word chose. It shows up one place and this is it. And here's something unique about it. This is not a small theme. I'll show you, okay? So the Apostle Paul, when he mentions the angels, and he talks about the angels that know and love God and worship God, he calls them the elect angels. Okay, well, we don't really care because we're, like, well, we're not an angel. Who cares? I guess things work differently with angels. But he says there's elect angels. Okay, we, we don't really care. That's the first use of the word election. The second use of the word election 
is people are elected to certain offices in the Bible. It's like, well, God chooses Noah. Why does God choose Noah? He ends up being a drunk. Why does God choose Abraham? Did Abraham go to God and go, hey, listen, my dad's like worshiping idols and I'm living in my mom's basement. I got an idea. What if I went out and I started a people and you created a whole nation from me? That's not what happened. God chose him. What about Moses who has an anger problem? What about David who's forgotten by his dad? How sad is that? What about Saul who's killing Christians? See, what happens is we read these stories and it goes, oh, God chose that person again. And we're just like, great, I guess God chooses people. But it doesn't really bother us. Then how about this, guys? God chose the nation of Israel. You never got upset about that. You never read the Bible and said, God, why not the Jebusites? <laughs> Just think about it. You read it, you go, I guess, I guess God can choose. God chooses angels. God chooses people to do different prophets and priests and kings. God chooses a nation of Israel. In fact, in Deuteronomy 7 and 8, God basically says to them, hey guys. Well, he doesn't say hey guys, but you know what I'm saying. He, say, he writes to them and he says, uh, through Moses, he says, I want you to know why I chose you, to Israel. And they're probably sitting there going, well, tell us. He says, I chose you because you're the least and the worst. And I would look the greatest by choosing the least. That's why I chose you. And then he goes on, he goes, no, I didn't choose you because you're good, because you're actually a very stubborn-hearted people. But we don't care about God choosing Israel, and we don't care about God choosing the angels, and we're not angry about God choosing people to office. And then how about God chooses Christ? I mean, that's what he's called, the chosen one. Anointed, appointed, Messiah. None of us go, well, that doesn't seem very fair. It's like, well, no, someone had to pay the price for our sins. God chose his only beloved son. We're not bothered by that. What we're bothered by is the type of election that we're seeing today, which is God chooses individuals to salvation. Now, there's a mystery here. What I'm doing today is I'm taking a Dixie cup, which represents your brain and my brain, and we're going down to the ocean. And we're going like this. That's all we're doing. I'm not going to be able to answer all of your questions. It's supposed to create a certain response when we realize, wait a second, God chose me. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, I'm glad God chose me before I was born because he would have never chosen me after. It brings up lots of questions. Here's what this means. You have to ask this question. And normally, because people get, you know, uncomfortable with some of this language sometimes and makes, we'll get into some of the questions. But if you actually, most people will agree. Most Christians agree. If you just bring it down and you go, well, why ultimately are you a Christian? Like you're in heaven. And God says, why ultimately are you a Christian? Are you going to say something like, well, you know what? I never really kind of noticed this before, but I had more faith than my non-Christian neighbor. Is that why you're in heaven? You're going to go, you know what, I was just a little more, I don't know why, a little more spiritually sensitive than my non-Christian friend. Are you going to be like, you know what, I'm, I've had, I, my IQ is a little higher. That's what it was. I'm a little smarter. I was kind of able to put the whole gospel thing together. I kind of understood the whole Old Testament, New Testament thing. It's like, no. You're going to go, ultimately, the reason I'm here is because of God. And it's like, yeah. In fact, if you look at the condition of man before, we'll get into this in Ephesians 2 in a few weeks. 
But you realize it's like, okay, the Bible says that we're ignorant. The Bible says that we're lost. It's not like we're lost and then we were stumbling around lost and we found God. That's not the picture. The picture is we're lost. <laughs> I mean, have you ever been really, really lost? It's like, you ain't getting out and you ain't finding it. You're like, would somebody come get me? I'm lost. That's what we're talking about. The Bible says that we're dead. Now, can dead people vote? They shouldn't. <laughs> Not supposed to happen. <laughs> the Bible says we're blind and we need to see. God opens our eyes. The Bible says we're in darkness and we need light. Now, it brings up a lot of questions, and I don't have time to deal with all of them, but Pastor Dave said he would stay as long as possible after service. <laughs> um, it brings up lots of questions. Here's what I want. Here, let me just give you the two questions that most people ask when they first experience this teaching. Why me? And if you're asking that question, you're actually asking the right question. That really is. Like, you're being, if, you, if you came to the place where you say, well, God, why me? I mean, I, there was 297 kids that graduated in my high school class. There was probably less than 10 of us that were Christians. So I ask, why me? And the answer is very deep, actually, but also still mysterious. And the answer is, it's not random. But it's not ultimately about you or how good you are or what you've done. It's not random. God's not like, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. you, you know. But it has nothing to do with how good you are. It's not like God looked down and was like, Kyle's got potential. We got to get him. We got to get him on the team. That's not what happened. It's not random, but it doesn't have anything to do with how good or great or special or different or elite I am. In fact, that's why the number one effect if you understand this blessing, is humility. I cannot believe that God chose me. The second question people ask is free will. It's like, okay, this is a deep question. Do we have free will? Yes, you have free will. You have the free will to do whatever you like and whatever you want. But here's the problem, guys. I don't like kale. Some of you have told me I need to eat kale. I know kale's healthier. That's like, look, I can't make myself like something I don't like. I can't make myself want something I don't want. And what the Bible says is in our natural condition, apart from the quickening work of the Holy Spirit, you would never want God. So it's supposed to humble us. It's, by the way, it's not, people sometimes experience this teaching as scary, like big God, little me. It's like, okay, I get some of that. But it's supposed to be about security. It's like, look, this is not about, you know, I've told you before, I became a Christian at 16. But it's not like, I'm not like, okay, I made a decision. This is all depending on me and what I decided when I was 16. It's like, no, this is depending on what God's been thinking about in eternity past. God loved me before I was born and has been thinking about me forever. And he's going to finish what he started. And it's also actually, in a strange way, a massive motivation for evangelism. You might go, how? Well, almost every missionary I know loves this doctrine. 
<clears throat> because if you go to Laos or Mumbai or Turkey or London, how do you know if anyone's going to believe? Well, it's because God says he has people from every tribe, tongue, nation. And in Acts 18, Paul's discouraged and he's suffering. And in Acts 18, verse 10, God appears to him and he says, Paul, be strengthened. I have many people in this city. In other words, I have people who are going to believe. I have chosen people in this city. The only way you find out who they are is by indiscriminately preaching the gospel. So embrace the mystery, embrace the wonder. This is not meant to be something that you think about all the time. I see two extremes. Either people want to avoid this issue and they want to explain it away and they want to go, well, predestined doesn't really mean predestined. I mean, what it means is that God saw that we would believe and then and it's like, okay, now it doesn't mean predestined anymore. Well, chosen doesn't mean chosen. Well, foreknow doesn't mean foreknow. It's like, sorry, we, we go for the simple plain reading of scripture. But you also, some people get weird about this. And it's, they think it's the most important doctrine ever. It's like this is the conversation on the back of the bus about how you were really born and what your mom and dad really did. That's what this is. Which leads to the second thing. The second blessing in eternity is adoption. Now, adoption is an answer to a problem. I mean, it is today, but it was then. Back then, there was no in IVF. Back then, adoption is an answer to a problem, which is I don't have a son. That's what it was. And there were two options if you didn't have a son. There was polygamy, which was usually option one for people. I will take another wife, which was normal back then. I will have several wives, and I will find a way to get a son because the son is how my legacy is going to go forward. He's going to be who stewards the property and the possessions. But, you know, sometimes you have a couple wives and you can't get pregnant. And then they would go to adoption. Now, we think of adoption as, like, cute. We think of, like, little baby, little kid getting adopted. That almost never happened in Roman culture. Roman culture almost always adopted people in their late teens, early 20s. Why? Because the people who adopted them were old. They had already tried to get pregnant many, many times. They tried to have natural birth. They were getting old and they were worried about their legacy and their lineage and their property and their possessions and their responsibilities, and so they would adopt. And so in Roman culture, by the way, there's a deep respect for adoption, and adopted children were seen the exact same as biological children with all the rights and responsibilities. Now, why was that? Because several of the emperors of Rome were adopted. Marcus Aurelius was adopted. So adoption is about saying, we said this at the beginning, but you're not just a servant or a slave, you're a son. But you know what's interesting? Today with adoption, right, we, we tend to, when you see adoption videos like you, you just saw there, when we think about adoption, we tend to have a romantic rose glass view of adoption. We're like, you know, you see some couple and they can't get pregnant, they can't stay pregnant, you hear that they're going to adopt and you go, this is so great. You're going to get to be a mom and a dad and that baby's going to have a home. We love that. Or you see the video there, you're like, come on, a godly family, give them another kid. Look, we, we just love it, and it's beautiful, and that's the, that's, that is the one side of adoption. You know, the other side of adoption is, what happened that this two-year-old doesn't have a mom or dad? What happened that this kid, you know, it it's, needs to be adopted? What, did someone die? 
Did someone not want this child? In the same way, you have to ask, why did we need to be adopted? And that's where he's going to take us in verse 7. He's going to tell us how we were adopted and the price that Christ paid. If you look at me uh, at verse 7, it says this. In him, now we're moving from God the Father to God the Son. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Very quickly, because uh, this is so important, but we talk about it all the time. I want to take us somewhere else. I just want to talk briefly about redemption. Redemption to us is a religious word. Back then it was a very normal word. It, was, it means to set someone free from bondage. Primarily to set a slave free from bondage by the payment of a price or a ransom. Now, here's why this is important. Uh, back then, you became a slave two ways. Now, now, this slavery in the Bible is very different than the American experience of slavery. Uh, back then, you went into slavery for two reasons. One, military defeat. Okay, that's just what everyone did. It's like, well, we beat you in well, free labor for us now. And that's what happened. Um, the second way that... Um, you'd become a slave is, uh, you know, we didn't have uh, chapter nine or chapter 11 uh, for bankruptcy. And so uh, if you couldn't pay your debts uh, or you owed bills, um, you would sell yourself voluntarily into slavery. And someone could come and they could release you from slavery by paying a price. What we see here is Christ paid the price with his blood. Whenever you see blood in the Bible, think that's shorthand for the giving of life. The principle with physical life and with spiritual life is something must die for you to live, right? So think about this this week. For you to continue to live, just physically, something must die for you to live. I think about this every time I eat a ribeye. This, thing had, this poor cow had to die for me to live, right? And if that offends you, if that offends you vegetarians, all the cows I eat are vegetarian, all of them. <laughs> But we understand this in the physical world that we understand this in the physical world that all everything must die so that something must die so that I can live. In the same way, Jesus Christ had to die and give His life so that we can live. The Bible says what we get is forgiveness, and this is our main. The main problem is that we have sin that needs to be forgiven. Good people don't go to heaven; forgiven people do. But what I want us to see here, if you'll continue on, verse 9 and 10 is the second. It's not quite as deep as what we talked about earlier. But I want to show you something very deep in verses 9 and 10. Here's what it says. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose. So you have the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Now, what in the world does that mean? The mystery of his will and the fullness of time to unite everything under him. Let me try to unpack it. Um, the fullness of time does not mean chronos time. So there's chronos time, tick-tock, tick-tock, day by day, week by week. Fullness of time is used to talk about a unique moment in human history. It's used two ways in the New Testament. It's used to say God, in the fullness of time, sent forth his son born of a virgin. What is that talking about? The first coming of Christ into the world. What is this fullness of time talking about? The second coming of Christ. In the fullness of time, in the second coming of Christ, God's going to unite all things. Now, what does all things mean? Everything. 
everything. He's going to unite all things in Christ. And then he just clarifies, in case you didn't understand everything, I mean all things in heaven and all things on earth. What does this mean? Well, it's probably helpful to know that the word unite is better translated, summed up. It's actually a math term. And one of the things you can do, if you ever like, what does a word mean and how is it used? This is not that hard to do with internet today. You can just go, does, does this author in the Bible use this word anywhere else? There's one other place Paul uses the Greek word summed up. In Romans 13, Paul says, well, you heard this commandment and you heard that commandment. And you also know this commandment, you know that commandment. And then he says, they're all summed up, same word, united. They're all summed up in love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, he says, let me simplify and summarize and tell you what all the laws were about love. And we go, I get that. What is he saying? At the end of time, you're going to realize everything's about Jesus. Like everything. That's not like Christianese to sound overly spiritual. It's like what's going to happen at the end of time is we're going to realize, those of us who are Christians, when we get to heaven, we're going to realize, in fact, everyone's going to realize it. Everything was about Jesus. Let, let me give you a couple examples. Um, marriage, right? Marriage is like the most intimate relationship on earth. For many people, it's one of the greatest joys of their life, yet it doesn't exist in heaven. Why? Well, I guess it does exist, but it's between Christ's church and Christ. The, the, the body of Christ is the bride and Christ is the groom. Well, marriage is about Jesus, right? We know that, but it, like, and marriage isn't about Jesus in like this way. Try, try to understand this, because there's just a world of difference between these two things. Um, marriage is not about Jesus in the sense that God looked down and said, how am I going to explain the relationship between my son and the church? Oh, there's marriage. Okay, that's good. Marriage is a great picture of my son in the church. That's not how it happened. God knew from eternity past that Christ was going to suffer and die for his bride and unite himself to her in a lifelong commitment. And so God decided to give us marriage so one day we could understand him. Totally different. It's not that God said, how do I describe my relationship to humans. Oh, Jesus, come over here. Look at this. Family, that's a great example. That's what we should do. We're kind of like a family. That's not what happened. What happened was God gave us family so we could understand him. It started with him. Even things that might make us uncomfortable, even sex is ultimately about God. Because, you know, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, don't be united to a prostitute. And the next verse says, instead, be united to the Lord. Whoa. Did you just use sexual imagery to talk about my relationship with the Lord? Yes. God's like, I need something that will express unbelievable amount of physical pleasure and intimacy at the same time that will ultimately point to me. Let's create sex. God could have sustained your life any way he wanted to. He's God. Why food and drink? Because one day I need to explain to people that Jesus is the bread of life and he's the living water. If you're not overwhelmed, you're not understanding. 
everything. We're going to figure it out one day. Why sports? Why beaches? Why mountains? Why suffering? Why evil? Why did you create the world when you knew Adam was going to sin? It's all going to be summed up. Here's the way to think about it. If there was a big blackboard back here, I'd write on this side of the equation, you know, the creation of the world and sin and evil. And, and then I'd go way over here and I wouldn't know what's in the middle. And I'd put equals summed up in Jesus Christ. It'll make sense one day. I remember I was a freshman in college. <clears throat> I was at Elon University. I'm sitting in my friend Tim's uh, dorm room. Tim was from Philadelphia and his dad worked at Westminster Seminary, great seminary. And Tim was about the deepest person I knew at the time. Tim said to me, we're sitting in, I remember late one night, we're in his room, we're talking about God, theology. He said to me, did you know that Elon University exists for Jesus Christ and his purposes? And I was like, I thought we were here to get an education. I thought this place existed to make money. I thought this was about making us economic citizens. Those are the secondary purposes. We'll find out one day. I don't know how it all works out. It's all going to be united in Christ. Wake Forest University exists for Jesus Christ and his purposes. It will be obvious one day. The hospital system here exists for Jesus Christ and his purposes. Who knows how? Maybe it was how he decided to heal us in the meantime. It'll be made clear one day. Truest bank and its purposes are for Jesus Christ and yes, even Krispy Kreme donuts. Which leads us to the present. Here's what he says. <laughs> if you'll turn with me to verses 11 through 14. In him, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I mean, the depth, do you see that? So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, here, here's where we get the present experience of salvation. Here's where we go back to the five-year-old answer. We were in the back of the bus, 15-year-old answer. Now we're going to the five-year-old answer. We're going to what you tell your kids. We're going to what we tell somebody. Okay, how do I become a Christian? Look. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the Holy, with the promise, Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So he basically tells us, okay, well, how do you practically become a Christian? You have to do two things. You have to hear and you have to believe. This is why we send missionaries. The sovereignty of God should not make us the frozen chosen, as it's been said. It should motivate us. And in fact, what's interesting is chapters 9 and chapter 11 of Romans. Read those some night. Those are the deepest chapters in the entire Bible, deeper than what I just taught you on the sovereignty of God and salvation. Chapter 9, chapter 11. Chapter 10 in Romans is the most evangelistic chapter in the whole Bible. That's where the, you know, how, will they, how can they believe if no one's sent? And how can, how can they have a preacher if no one sends them? And how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? That's chapter 10 of Romans. And so this is why we plant churches. This is why we send missionaries. This is why we share the gospel with people who are far from God and close to us because people need to hear and then they need to believe. If for some reason you got nervous and you said, you know, I don't know, how do I know if I'm chosen? Do you believe? 
If you go, I believe it, I go, you're chosen. If you go, well, I don't believe. Well, then you're not chosen. Okay, I believe. Oh, then you're chosen. <laughs> I don't know how it all works. Notice he says you have to believe in Jesus Christ. That's very different than believing that Jesus Christ. My concern in our church and in our city is that people believe that Jesus Christ and they don't believe in Jesus Christ. Let's pray for our kids, right? Growing up in kids' ministry, they can believe that Jesus was born. They believe that Jesus died. We can raise a generation of people that are convinced and not converted. They believe that, but they don't believe in it. In fact, the Greek word for believe in, it's a little awkward, so we don't translate it this way. It's believe on or believe into. It's like, you know, the classic example, I didn't bring a chair up here, but if I put a chair here and I could say, I believe that the chair can hold me. I believe that. Well, do you? You believe in the chair when you sit down in it. The way you become a Christian is when you transfer trust to Jesus. You're born again and you believe. And the Bible says when you do that, you're, see there, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. That was, um, so Ephesus, I don't think I said this last week, was a commercial port city. So they're getting stuff in and out all the time. And what you're looking for, well today as well, but back then is whose seal is on this? And the seal was what authenticated things. The seal was what showed ownership. The seal was what protected it. It's like, oh, this belongs to the king. This belongs to this wealthy family. We better make sure this gets to whoever it needs to get to because I don't want to deal with that family because there's seals on this. Well, God says, I'm the seal. My spirit is the seal. So I'm going to give you myself. And then he says, you see, I'm the guarantee of the inheritance. Here's how we would say that today. Here's what it means in modern lingo. Lingo the down payment or the earnest money. So if you've ever like, you know, you're ever gonna like, you put an offer on a house, what do they want? They want a little money to let me know you're serious. And the more expensive the house, the more money they want down. And so what, what earnest money is, is it's basically saying, here's enough money that you know I'm coming back to pay the rest because I don't wanna walk away from this. God said, instead of money, I'm gonna give you my spirit as the down payment. This hurts my head theologically, but God's saying, I'm giving you some of me, the rest of me is coming later. You live in the already, not yet. That's why the Bible says there, inheritance. Inheritance says you're not just a son, you're an heir. Now in the Old Testament, the inheritance was the land. You read the Old Testament, it's all about the land, the land, the land. You get to the New Testament and it explodes. You inherit the kingdom. Or there's this one moment in 1 Corinthians 3 where Paul goes, guys, why are you fighting? Read this tonight. In 1 Corinthians 3, he goes, Paul, why are you, Paul goes, why are you fighting? Who's Apollos and who's, who follows you know, Paul? And he says, all things are yours. He's like, you're a co-heir with Christ. He's like, everything's yours, everything. It's like unbelievable. It's like we are going to inherit an entirely transformed universe because we're co-heirs with Jesus Christ, which leads to the final thing I need to show you. Verse 14, you gotta see this. This is the third deep thing we're looking at together. Look at this. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance, <clears throat> that's the Holy Spirit, until we acquire possession of it, look, here it is, to the praise of his glory. Now, if you look in verse six, you'll see that phrase. 
And if you look in verse 12, you'll see that phrase. And if you look in verse 14, what I just read, you see the phrase. You're like, okay, Paul, I get it. You're repeating yourself to the praise of his glory. So you start out praising God and you end praising God. So there's four times you praise God. Three of them says praise to the glory. Praise, um, yeah, to the glory of God's grace. Now, here's what this means. Why did God do this? So we're, in some sense, what I'm about to say is maybe the deepest thing. Why did God do everything the way that he did it? So that he would be seen as great. We live in a world that was created to show the absolute greatness of God. Theologians say there is not a world that could be imagined or created in which God would get more glory because if there was, he would have created it. You and I live in a world in which everything is designed to be united in Christ and to glorify God. And so if you ever ask the question, wait a second, why did God create the world even though he knew Adam was gonna fall? The answer is because in some way God will get more glory because we're gonna know him not just as creator, but we're now gonna know him as redeemer and as father. We're going to get to know God more deeply than Adam ever could because sin and evil entered the world. God created the world in such a way that we would see how great he is. And so as we close, sometimes when we close, I've got like three things you need to do and four steps you need to take. Today, I think we just need to think about it. I think we need to just take some time and think about how great our God is. In fact, this may sound like a strange way to kind of close, but as I think about the mind of God and the plan of God, you know what I think of? The NCAA March Madness Tournament, okay? Do you remember this just happened like a month ago? Remember how a bracket comes out for these tournaments? And uh, this year was the first year that I took my kids and I said, all right, guys, 11, nine, six years old. I said, guys, you know, I think I said something like, all right, 20 bucks if you get the final four right which I didn't realize even how difficult that was. But uh, my daughter, you know, she's pretty smart. She goes, Dad, this is easy. The 15th uh, seed is going to lose to the two seed. I'm like, eh, not always. She's like, well, definitely the one seed beats the 16th seed. I'm like, ah, usually, but not this year. We found out. And what you find out is when you, there's only 63 games in the March Madness tournament. 63 games. No one has ever gotten them right. All of them right. The chance of getting every one of those 63 games right is one in 9.2 quintillion. That's 9.2 with 18 zeros after it. Guys, we can't even get the 63 games right. God has been architecting the salvation of every person from the beginning of time, before time. And so here's what I think we need to do. And we're not a deep people. Our nation is not a deep people. You need to think about your blessings. My grandma used to say, count your blessings. Count them. Some of you need to go home and you need to make a list of like your 10 earthly blessings. And your marriage needs to have a lot more affirmation and appreciation in it. And you need to go home and you need to say, I thank God for you. And you need to tell your kids, I thank God for you. And you need to start looking at all of your earthly blessings and you need to say, God, I thank you for my job and I thank you for my health and I thank you for the time that I have here and I thank you that I can still call my parents or I thank you I can call one of my parents. And when you finish making that list, you start thanking God for all of your heavenly blessings. Oh my gosh, Lord, thank you, why me? 
I can't believe I have an inheritance. I can't believe I'm part of this family. Some of you need to walk in a spirit of sonship, not a spirit of slavery anymore. You need to say, look, I know no one knows me, but God has known me since the beginning of time. You may say, I don't have much to look forward to with a real inheritance. You know, I had a guy one time, he says, dad, his dad died, and he said, you know what's sad? My dad left me nothing. We already didn't have a good relationship, and my dad left me nothing. It's like God saying, when you die, you're about to inherit the kingdom of God because of what Christ has done. So what do you do in response? The Bible says we're always blessed to be a blessing. We are so blessed, earthly and heavenly, so that we could be a blessing to others. What does it look like for every environment you to walk in to go, I want to be a blessing because my heart is so full of the earthly and heavenly blessings God's given me. Let's pray. Lord, your first word to Adam and Eve was not a command. Be fruitful and multiply, if we read carefully, was not a command. It says, God bless them. Lord, your first word to humanity was that of a blessing. Lord, when you took Abraham and you blessed him, and you said you're going to make him a great nation, you also said, and through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. Lord, would you help us, Lord? We, we just confess that we are a people who often are more concerned about what we don't have than what we have. Would you help us thank you for our earthly and our heavenly blessings? Would you help us to be a blessing wherever we live, learn, work, and play? I pray this in Jesus' name.